Welcome back, Eamon, to another episode of Play to Find Out, a Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World fan discord. Uh, as always, I'm Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts, and it's really good to have you back, Eamon. Yeah, my name is Eamon, also Voidlight on the Dungeon World discord. We've both kind of gone on our own adventures uh, over the past couple weeks. I hear that you were at PAX. I was. PAX East is ongoing as we record this, but I have, I think, concluded my visit to it. I got to go Thursday and Friday for a combination of panels and running games on demand and, you know, just kind of hanging out, checking some stuff out and spending too much money on dice and dice-related merchandise. <laughs> what uh, what city is it in this year? Does it uh, move around? Yeah, so PAX East is in Boston. Um, it appeared okay. at uh, one of the big convention centers in the city. Um, and since I live just outside of Boston, it's convenient for me to get there. And for our listeners who don't know, PAX, P-A-X, is a convention of uh, gaming and different geek and nerd culture-related mm-hmm. things. Uh, I think it's sponsored by Penny Arcade, is that correct? It's affiliated with Penny Arcade, um, yeah. and they describe it as being a convention of conventions, where a bunch of independent conventions all get together in one building under one banner. And I think that that's a fairly apt description, all things considered. It's like a tabletop gaming convention next to a comedy convention, next to a video games convention, next to an indie development promotion convention, next to a, you know, testing convention. It's got a little bit of everything. But for our purposes, it's something where you can go hear cool panels, hear people talk about mm-hmm. games and RPG culture, and then play some games, right? You can totally. run some games, play some games. And and yeah, this year my PAX East was pretty much exclusively devoted to uh, tabletop game-related activities, and that's just the way I like it. Sounds glorious, honestly. Yeah. I'd and love to go to a big convention at some point. Yeah, we got to get you out here next time around. Um, or maybe to PAX Unplugged in, I think, November which is their mm. truly tabletop-focused one. Cool. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some of my many PAX experiences throughout the episode, but I'd like to start with a highlight from a recent game that I had at PAX. All right. So I ran a couple of sessions of Dungeon World on demand, which meant with pickup groups that I have never uh, played with or met before. As uh, as they came up and wanted to play, I was the guy that they got to play with. And we had a couple of really fun games. And there was one particular moment in one of the games that I thought was, a really, was really cool. And I feel like I've learned a little bit from the experience myself. At one point, the PCs were fighting their way through a gigantic ant hive. In the sense of the ants were gigantic and the hive also gigantic. We had a wizard in the party, and that wizard got a six minus on a cast a spell in an attempt to cast invisibility. And we've talked a little bit on the show before about what to do on a six minus result for a cast of invisibility, or really any cast. And I had an opportunity to take some of that experience and use it, because the perfect opportunity presented itself for the spell to work. And for the consequences to be bad, basic consequences that I went with were you are invisible, which means your friends can't see you, but the ants don't use their eyes to determine where you are. They're sensing you with their antenna, and you are not hidden from them at all. Ah. And, and 
was he was he forced to like reveal his position any more even more to like allow his friends to know where he was by like speaking and yeah and he like ended that. up getting he ended up getting coded in ant entrails at one point and that was how they were able to identify him for the remainder of this sequence that's um, just like a walking bunch of guts <laughs> yeah basically a walking sack of goo uh, or <laughs> i guess he's the, he was inside a sack made of goo would be a better way of putting it it was it was fun um it was a cool moment to sort of reveal a weakness of this wizard um, in the context. And, of course, you know, thinking about it after the fact, I didn't know that ants could see through invisibility or that they didn't need their eyes to determine where these people were located. And it ended up informing a lot of ant moves that I made throughout the rest of the session. Um, mm-hmm. But because that one six minus gave me the opportunity to declare something true about the world, you know, we were able to follow through with it and it ended up working out really well. Yeah, that's a great example of rolling with the punches, making the narrative uh, go in interesting directions. Yeah, and it's me doing the thing that I like doing on a six minus with a cast a spell, which is not just using one of the seven to nine consequences and calling it a day. <laughs> because where's the fun in that? Where indeed? Well, what else interesting went on at PAX? Oh, so much. Um, and in particular, I think it's time for us to have a little adventure workshop where we talk about something that... Uh, I learned uh, in great detail. Today's Adventure Workshop, we're going to be talking about a panel I got a chance to see. Improv in role-playing. What to do... Or, oh, sorry, hang on, I can get the title of this right. Improv in role-playing. Running your games in the now. Uh, was a panel at PAX East this year. It was a panel of five theater and improv professionals in the Boston area combining their accumulated wisdom and knowledge to teach some lessons about running games in the now. I think Do you know was, who any of them were? Yeah, absolutely. And I can list off some of their names right off the top of my head. Um, the panel was moderated by a man named John Serpico, who is on the board of directors at Improv Boston, um, and also writes a handful of gaming-related columns. Also on the panel were John Perich, David Marino, Bobby Smithney, and Melissa Carubia. Um, and th- these are all various people with, you know, improv-related jobs in the area. Um, some of them are, uh, some of them run theater programs at local schools. Others are involved in touring companies or comedy groups. And all of them have ongoing, mostly Dungeons & Dragons games that they were using as examples to, get, you know, to bring to the table. Uh, the unenlightened. Ah, I yes. I well, I don't want to. I don't want to be rude, but also <laughs> no, I... one, one thing I did notice was that pretty much every single piece of content that they brought as a big revelation um, had its roots in something that I think a lot of Dungeon World DMs will see in the book. There were a, there was a lot of emphasis on failing forward um, to the point where I think even they had fail forward on a slide in big text, um, hmm. but. At the same time, you know, while a lot of the things that they were teaching were things that Dungeon World takes for granted, they also had a lot of really cool examples of ways to apply those. And I thought that today in our adventure workshop, we'd look at a couple of the, the specific applications of those techniques that they brought up, talk through a couple of them, and see how we might use them in our own games. How does that sound? Absolutely. Hit me with what you got. All right. So one of the first, the thing that made me pull out my notebook and start writing stuff down was something that... Uh, like clicked for me in a way that it hadn't before. When you're running a game, it's very tempting to make your NPCs sort of set dressing, right? You, and you, 
when an NPC has to make that transition from scenery to realized person, there's that moment of, well, what does this NPC want? What does this NPC do? How do I inhabit this character that I, you know, said was here but don't really have plans for? Um, and they suggest using one technique from improv, which is to choose a relationship immediately um, that that NPC has with something in the world. And that relationship might be something like, I want something, but it can also be, I don't like something, or something as simple as, I'm a barkeep and my hands are sticky. Because once you know that you're a barkeep and your hands are sticky, then suddenly you have all this extra stuff you can draw on. If my hands are sticky, I'm probably cranky about it. I probably have a towel with me. Why are they sticky? Well, I've probably been working with food. Where, where did I get the food? Well, there's a there's a food shortage on. And, and this kind of cascading effect can really impact your ability to inhabit a character because you immediately, as soon as you know one thing about them, one thing about the relationship with the world, suddenly you have all these other things to draw on about what informs that character's worldview. And then, you know, it's easy from there. So pick one relationship immediately when you need to have an NPC interact with players or be realer than just a scenery item. And... You know, there you go. NPCs immediately become three-dimensional in a way that they weren't before. There is a real art to characterizing NPCs and having them not be a stock character. Um, because we all, when we all like, oh, this person, and you have to say something about them to describe them to the player. And it's really easy to say their occupation or type to be like, this is an old woman. And then everyone is imagining whatever their old woman is, or this is a, a farm boy or something. Um, but I've seen, especially in some specific, uh, adventure modules and stuff, the, they're, they're, it's a kind of an old school style to assume that the players might potentially need, uh, replacement characters. And so, or they'll need hirelings. And so they, sometimes they provide you a little table of random hirelings. And I've seen one specific, uh, one specific adventure module comes to mind called the slumbering ursine duels. Or slumbering Ursine Dunes, excuse me, that just had the most evocative NPCs. And I'll, I'll find some of those and, and maybe like say them towards the end of this. But I want to hear what else was from this, uh, this improv panel. Cool. So then there was another really cool specific thing that can happen at a table. And I think this one was really, really cool because it's something that you can use when, you know, players might not necessarily be in a scene or, you know, maybe the party is split and there's some reason why some players aren't interacting with an NPC, but some players are. They suggest having your players hop in as other NPCs in a scene to sort of temporarily shed their player character and come in as the hireling or the minion or the underling of the villain or the waiter that happened to hear something and use that as an opportunity to add in a little bit of extra flavor. This is something I have never done, but I've heard of other groups doing, and it never really occurred to me that it would that it could work as generically as it did. I've, I think the main example I can think of is uh, the famous podcast, The Adventure Zone. There's a sequence at one point where the um, where the players all take on the role of reporters in a crowd to ask each other questions uh, in order to facilitate the scene. But you don't have to, A, you don't have to be improv professionals for that to be funny. And B, that is something you can do any time to increase your player engagement at the table. It's just say, hey, you want to be this barkeep? Would you like to be the tavern keeper? Would you like to be the farm boy? 
And suddenly that, there's this extra layer of engagement that will also help make that interaction memorable for everybody. Have you ever seen this in play um, other than in the Adventure Zone, like in other actual plays and stuff? Uh, so I tried it once with, with one of my groups without really realizing what I was doing. And I don't think it worked particularly well because I didn't realize what I was doing at the time. Um, if anything could be called a quote-unquote advanced technique in role-playing, it's probably this, because it disrupts the structure of how the game normally goes um, fairly significantly and requires a lot of trust in the group mm-hmm. for it not to sort of just, like, spiral out of hand. But um, it is not as intimidating as it might sound. And I've seen this in a lot of groups. A lot of the podcasts I listen to kind of operate in this play space. I listen to a lot of the um, One Shot Network, which is a group of... Uh, improv people uh, and a role-playing network community out of uh, Chicago uh, with James D'Amato and and his friends. And they're doing um, some different things right now. But very often, whenever a new character comes up or one character's like, oh yeah, I know this guy and he's here. And the GM's like, okay, I guess they're here. And then someone will just whoever like mo- like is just most excited about the idea of this NPC will just jump in and start playing them. And um, I, in some groups that I've seen that are a little bit more trying to keep preserve the GM's ability to determine plot elements, the GM might um, have a little card that says what this NPC wants or is trying to gain out of this encounter. And whoever's jumping in to play that NPC, they'll pass that to, to be like, you know, wherever direction you go with this guy, make sure that, you know, this is what he's trying to go for and then call for roles as needed. But it's very handy because it allows you to go beyond just you as the GM, your, your scope and what, what different characters you can do and, and, how you're um, able to portray something, just what directions you can go with it. And it's kind of a just one step further than the idea of pulling the, the players. You know, if you don't know how something looks or how something happens, you say, like, I don't know. Like, what do, you, what do you guys think is here? Or at least get their impressions. It's just one thing beyond that. Like, what do you guys think this guy sounds like mm-hmm. is one step beneath um, become this character for me for a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's sort of, I think a lot of the advice that they had at this panel was of the form, here is a responsibility that you can abdicate in favor of your players taking on, taking it on. Which actually is brings me to the next of the little applicable tidbits. Um, this, is, this one is really more applicable in the world of Dungeons & Dragons, where oftentimes, in order to determine how something goes, you roll a result on a table. There's a little bit of that in Dungeon World, but I don't really leverage it as much as maybe I should. But there was one particularly cool thing. I think this was Bobby Smithney that brought this one out, which was rather than rolling a table to determine treasure or what the curse does or, you know, how the how the guards feel about the elves or whatever it happens to be. You can if you have your players write out the table that they then roll on for whatever random consequence you're trying to generate, it gives you an opportunity to make the players come up with something that is interesting it's sort of a natural place for a player to insert a fictional flag, for instance. You know, oh, I want, I'd be interested to know what would happen if my character was pe- petrified from the waist down. Well, that's going to be something I write into this table that we then roll on to determine what happens when I touch the idol. Um, I don't know that I'll ever use that, but I thought it was a cool idea, uh, especially because I like the idea of player uh, players generating consequences when, it, when possible. Hmm. <laughs> Um, almost like they get to pick their own whatever the, their own uh, move that is made against them. But you know, 
I'm not crazy about that one, but I think it's nifty. Um, let me see. Let me jump ahead a little bit here because I think we've covered a lot of the ones that I'm particularly excited about, but there was one more. Ah, yes. So at one point there was an opportunity for audience questions, and there was one question that I really liked about, you know, in theater, obviously there's a tendency to warm up before you perform. And the question was, what do you do at your tables so that everyone can kind of warm up their their improv and PC muscles? Um, and they suggested two things. There's the classic two-minute recap that we've covered before where players describe what happened so you can get a sense not only of what they remember but what was important enough for them to remember. But also they had something that I thought was so funny and I really want to give it a try with one of my consistent groups which is take BuzzFeed personality quizzes in character and see what results you get. Which Disney <laughs> princess are you? Which Marvel superhero are you? Uh, what is your favorite kind of pasta sauce based on th your question, your knowledge about the Golden Girls? What I don't know what BuzzFeed quizzes look like, but take those in character is a great way to like get into your character's head as though you really are that character. It, it, it can be a way to pick out particular moments that let you develop in a little bit more depth. And I also think it's just a funny idea to have my group sit down and get on a BuzzFeed quiz and say, all right, yawn the emulator. Tell me, what kind of bread fits your lovemaking style most accurately? <laughs> and, you know. That sounds so BuzzFeed. It's, There's, um, I don't know what BuzzFeed does. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I, uh, I have a group... Um, a a D and D fifth edition game that I play in, and there's a group chat where the players like coordinate like when they want to play. And someone started in the group chat asking everyone if our game somehow got picked up as a, a original license that they were going to make a movie out of. Who would be cast as all the characters, and you had to like decide who would play your character. And I found that a really interesting exercise to think um, of my character in terms of a real person somewhere like who do I think like could play this person not being myself right because I don't want the character to just be seen as me because this character has like certain standpoints and like certain ways of like acting that like um aren't myself but I just think are really interesting like this person is really like conflicted between um staying true to someone that they made a promise to or um just getting personal gain and and like that's like one of the things this character does but like so everyone is going around and uh, i think i chose rami malik oh, to play my character pick. um and there were really good ones all around the table someone was like oh yeah my character is natalie dormer and one person was like yeah my character is you know so and so but it's it's a really good i've also heard this as a technique at the table uh there's an actual play i listened to where the gm each new character that would come up um he would say, uh, oh, this person I'm casting this person as. So the players could have a real-life reference. That they could be like, oh, yeah, okay, I can picture this guy in my head. Mm -hmm. um, as if as if they were scripting a, a movie, basically. Which is which is uh, another technique that's a little bit more in the writer's room style. Mm -hmm. Of, like, everyone kind of... There's this understood meta of, like, we're not even... Um, we're, we're understanding that we're, like, describing a potential world. Um, it's a little less immersive for some people, but I right. think it has its strengths. Yeah, I do that um, in my NPC prep sometimes. Uh, in part because it helps me think about what they oh, sound yeah. like and how they intone and what their cadence is like. Sure. Uh, yeah, you could. You, that's a really good tip because you could. It's you could. You get the benefits of the same exercise, but instead of revealing that to the players, you just have it as a note mm -hmm. in your head. So then you can kind of like embody that person's 
acting yeah. style or whatever mannerisms they totally. often bring. And it can be really useful, wanna... too, to just be able to say, yeah, I think if this were a real movie, uh, this guy would probably be played by Cal Penn. And, you know, there you go. Problem solved. Now everyone has in their head, like, the, exactly the same picture that I have. And that can be a useful shorthand, especially if I don't want to deal with the, you know, sort of longer scope. Oh, well, he's he's tall and handsome. He's got broad shoulders and sort of a, a, a rectangular face, whatever it happens to be. Um, so, yeah, these are some of the cool tips that I uh, that I really enjoyed from the panel. I don't know whether or not there is a streaming link available to it yet or if it was recorded at all. But if I can track that down, and I really hope I can, I will do my best to link it in the show notes. If not, well, hopefully that panel will repeat itself. It Apparently, this is the second year running, so next year I suspect it will be back again. And uh, you better believe I will be there to, uh, to pick up more clever ideas to bring back to all of you out there. A couple things I wanted to add. Um, firstly, a lot of times when you go to like a panel and there's like, or you watch a live stream or a... Uh, an actual play and there's like these just people in there like yeah we're professional improv people um that can sometimes be intimidating or even if you watch like matt mercer play with his group with the a critical role i know it's very popular mm-hmm. for fifth edition um sure those people have like acting training and are professional um improv and stuff but that doesn't have to be a standard that you hold your own group to and additionally even if they're doing stuff um like jumping into you know characters jumping into npcs on the fly you can try that in your home game so long as you just have, like, the trust in your group that, like, mm-hmm. it's fine. Like, it's okay to, like, come up at a loss, you know, in yeah. front of your own friends and stuff. You're not performing on stage. You're not recording it and live streaming it. Um, and if you are, you're signing up for that. So mm-hmm. um, it's okay to take risks in a role-playing yeah. space. Totally. So it's one of the strengths of the hobby because you're not going it's, to – it's not going to blow up in your face as long as you have, like, trust with your friends, yeah. you know. The worst-case scenario is that it doesn't work the one time you try it. And then you just yeah. don't do it. And it's fine. Um, Another thing I wanted to add is an amazing um, role-playing or uh, improv technique that has been um, part of my GM prep for a while. And I picked this up, I think, from the Gauntlet community. I think Jason Cordova um, was was the one who kind of uh, brought this to my attention. But it's called the 731 technique. And so before, um, before play... Uh, but not not necessarily like before play, like before you get to the table, but like as the characters are talking, like during a session, as they're kind of like spitballing ideas, and especially during session zero, you start thinking of seven um, back pocket tools. Um, those can be NPCs, they can be set pieces, they can be an item, uh, just seven interesting set pieces that you want to drop somewhere as this goes on. And you have them on index cards or something. And for each one, you have three details, just at least three things like this thing is uh, just three interesting evocative things about it. Like maybe it has ancient heritage. It is sought by, you know, the, the, the nine, the dark nine. And it also is currently in possession of the nemesis. One of the characters, like those are three interesting details about it. And then the one part is one interesting affectation um, that will help you role play it. Um, and that's mainly for NPCs, like maybe this person speaks very quietly or this person um, is always using words uh, wrongly, that they like big words that they think mean something mm-hmm. that they actually don't or something like that. And so at any point you can pull this out and you don't have to know like, where that person fits in the story yet. But whenever the people, um, whenever the PCs come somewhere 
and they say like, you know, who do we find here? Something off the beaten track. You can just pull one of these out um, from your sort of hand of cards or at random and uh, put them in there. And you already have someone that you're interested in playing that's fleshed out, that's hopefully tied into plot hooks you've pre previously had with just enough to flush them out. And these can be borrowed from places. If you see like a character that you really like, you can write up a little card for them or something, but they're also really easy enough to create. And seven seems to be a good enough number that you won't run out in the course of like, you know, a, a four hour session or so, um, but also enough that they won't uh, become, become stale and they're pretty easy to write up. Um, I think I've, I was looking, I found the Ursine Dunes um, table of their random men at arms and they're kind of done in this style of just like one sentence with a few sort of dungeon world style tags for this person and that really flushes them out are you all right if i read like two or three oh, of these? go for it yeah i want to hear them so there's table is split up into um uh, slumbering ursine dunes is a is an adventure setting um that's set in the dunes but it's got um fleshed out off of Slavic folklore. So there's things in there like werebears and um, different uh, different things like that and godlings and stuff. And I think it's done for labyrinth lords, so the stats here don't matter, but I'll just skip those. They split the table into men-at-arms and then just other hirelings. So here's an example of one of the men-at-arms. Um, Old Blue, he wears scale mail, he has a battle axe, he's somewhat hulking, a bearish men-at-arms, and he seeks the knowledge of man's red flower. Hmm. Um, that sounds Mohak the Wanderer. Mohak the Wanderer has studded leather armor, a quarterstaff, an elaborate great helm, and he has never left town. So, like, everything for him is going to be like, this is my first time doing this, you know? You can already see how that one's going. There's another guy here, Cracky the Hooded, uh, has a pike and nunchucks, and always laughs at all your jokes. And I think the, uh, the other hirelings for hire, like the ones that aren't combat-focused, are even better, because some of them just... Um, really push the idea of like why you would want this hireling um because they, they clearly can't fight but they're like useful to your party in some other way um there's one uh malinka an executive assistant with a whip and a club she'll get you to the dungeon on time <laughs> oh that's great uh, putra has dark soulful eyes she will not sleep with you she has a lantern a garrot and a dagger so <laughs> a lot of them are just like one little sentence, but that's already enough that you could, that character could be an interesting, like, a, or a, something that could interact with the party in interesting ways. But yeah, one, those are really easy enough. That I feel like anyone in their home game could come up with stuff like that. And that's a lot more evocative than a lot of the NPCs that we tend to see, you know? Totally. I, I honestly, uh, one of the things that I do when I'm, when I'm on the train getting home or whatever it happens to be. I'll have a notebook out and I'll just start writing down sentences about characters as I as I free associate to them. Um, at some point, I'll actually bring one of those notepads around and read out a couple of them um, just to sort of show that, A, it's good to always be thinking because, B, you're not going to always have good ideas. And sometimes all you need to do in order to get to a good idea is think about a bunch of bad ones first. Yeah, take those off the top in order to uncover the really good stuff. If if also if you're someone who uh, improv in and of itself or the idea of improv is intimidating for, it's really nice to have that safety net of like you know seven or so things that you thought of beforehand that you can sort of rest on. Like if you come up blank, you can just whip out a little card and be like, all right, I'm going to kind of. 
go off my little notes here. And it's really not that intensive to make that. Totally. And, and that's also something you can practice. Um, you know, the more you generate those notes, the quicker they'll come to you. And eventually the loop of getting of going from nothing to seven, three, one gets fast enough that you don't need to do it in advance anymore. You can do it on the fly. Um, or, you know, you can do it in the five minutes that you're taking as a break between when the players arrive at the dungeon and when the doors creak open. Uh, so everyone else gets their water and their snacks while you scribble furiously in a notebook. It gets easier and easier as time goes on. And eventually, you're going to be uh, confident enough in that that you're going to be running completely unprepared games for complete strangers twice in one 24-hour period. Like I did. Yeah, another thing that can another thing that can seem intimidating at first, talking about, you know, playing in the safety of your home game. Yeah. If you're ready to step out of that and challenge yourself in role playing, try playing with people you've never met. And let's talk about and that. Speaking of yeah, speaking of trying to play games with people you never met, it's time for Meta Talk. So for people who aren't familiar with the con scene, Arthur, what what is this stuff like? Do you oh. have to register beforehand? Like Well, let me set this up a, a little bit. So I was at PAX East, and part of the reason I was at PAX East was to play some games. But that's not why... I didn't know going into PAX East that I was going to be running Games on Demand Dungeon World twice in two days. In fact, I didn't know that it was even an option when I arrived. Um, I was wandering around the tabletop section looking for stuff to do. um, And I came across the Games on Demand tent and, you know, said, Oh, hey, you know, I, I did this when I was at Big Bad Con back in October... You know, this is cool. I'm. I wish I'd known I would have signed up. And they were like, "Yeah, well, we've got we've got openings. You want to run something?" And it just so happened that I had all of my uh, all of my character sheets and copy of the book and a bunch of dice and stuff in my bag because I brought them to PAX because I was hoping maybe I would be able to play again. And that's not important. What is important is that I uh, I was ready to go. Um, and so I got matched with a group of five completely complete strangers, people I had never met before, who had never met each other before. We sat down at a table, and for three hours we went through a tight one-shot, um, and then we did the same thing the next day. So that's kind of the big idea of, uh, of what that whole process looked like. Um, so... Yeah, playing with complete strangers. It's very fun, but very intimidating. Eamon, how uh, how would you like to talk this through? It can be kind of intimidating, um, especially your first time doing it, because um, it's just different. It's just guaranteed to be different than playing with people you know, because you just don't know what you're going to get. And um, it embraces the spirit of uh, finding out at the table and playing to find out, because you're certainly not like, spitballing headcanon with these people like months before you spin up a campaign or anything like that. The first time I ever did something like this, I was in a state that I don't live in. I was um, in uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, working a job like over the summer. And uh, I was looking around because I didn't have anyone to play with or role playing and didn't have any campaigns going during the summer. Um, and there was this thing called in-town RPG day, like just at a bar in Atlanta that was going on like the first Saturday of every month and I was free for one of them and it was basically like a mini con like it was people from the Atlanta area they had rented out the back room of this bar and they just had tables set up and you could register for slots to play things um and so I I registered to run Dungeon World and I knew I was going to be getting you know five to six people at my table that I'd never met and I just wanted and I and I couldn't guarantee that they even played Dungeon World because I marked my game as like beginner friendly 
And it was an exercise in being able to see whether I still enjoy role playing in that setting or not, because I didn't know because I'd never tried it. And it, it went really well. I think I, I would come away from that experience saying that Dungeon World particularly is probably pretty well situated to that. Certain RPGs definitely are, um, and other ones probably definitely aren't. Ones that require a lot of setup or like a lot of world building to get into the meat of it mm-hmm. or that are designed for really long running play. For example, no one would run Burning Wheel at a con. Um, but there are other things that are almost like in their element at con games. Like, have you ever heard of, um, uh, lasers and feelings? Oh, lasers and feelings is fun. I played yeah. that. And uh, all of its hacks. Ago. Yeah. That's like the quintessential con game because rolling up a character is you just roll a dice or actually, actually you don't even roll. You just can pick mm-hmm. your number. Yeah. One page RPGs is a single number are yeah. really cool. And I, I think it's a really neat community that's generating some really great content, but Dungeon World has this unique situation, right? Because it is so familiar to Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder players right off the bat. But there's also But the mechanics are simple, so you can make a character really Absolutely. easy. Like and that's why I think it's better at cons than some of those other games just in terms of uh getting things rolling yeah. smoothly. But then there's also sort of at least my experience with this past set of con games was that there are also bad Dungeons and Dragons habits that sort of seep into the table as a result. Um, and I think that'll be, um, that'll be inevitable with any group that has never played Dungeon World before. But when five people have played Dungeons and Dragons before, each their own way at their own table with their own house rules, and then the group of them all come together and suddenly find Dungeon World, that's a really, that can be a revelatory experience for everybody, myself included. Um, so yeah, why don't we? So the role, the role of a GM, I was at at a con is almost more important Mm -hmm. because, their, their goal is not just to like be the narrative presence in the game and, and like make sure that a good story happens, but also to get everyone on the same page and to sort of like wrangle the table a little bit. And I've only done this a few times, so I've never had any really bad experiences with it. Um, but, uh, at a con, you just have to be open to, uh, you know, a public game. Like people can come to your table and just like be like, I want to play this way and I'm only going to be happy if I get to like, be a power player or whatever and and you just have to be um ready to to deal with that or whatever um and as a player i would say that um flexibility and openness are one of the most important things for con games because you just have to go with if the story if the the table is looking for a certain type of experience and this is how they like to play and everyone's down with it just just roll with it you know um as long as it's like not something uh like violating your comfort or something. But if the, if the table's not interested in exploring this potential moment for deep intrigue and everyone else kind of moves on and the GM is ushering people forward, like that's kind of okay. And as the GM, um, reading the table and responding to like the dynamic of where everyone is, even out of character, like are people like wanting a break right now? That's a skill a, a lot more important and also a bit more difficult at a con mm-hmm. than it would be just with your, you know, your buds. Totally. You know? So what are your table read techniques? What are you looking for? And what are you what are you writing down in your little uh, checklist of player experience goals? I know I have some strategies for this, but I want to hear yours first. I would, um, the above all technique is asking questions. Um, being able to craft questions that suggest something at the same time as request something um, is good both in character and out of character. Um, for example, asking... Um, do you guys think it's about time for a break? Both suggests that breaks are okay mm-hmm. and that um, you can request them and also uh, asks if they want one, you know, at the same time. It's just simply asking them out of character. Um, also, just going on the table, being um, being like, 
there's the classic, what is your character doing right now? Just get a sense where everyone Mm -hmm. is and just have like a broad spotlight sweep, but also say like, how are you feeling right now? You know, at like the 20 minute mark and at the half hour mark. And then like when the session's halfway done, um, to the character, to the person out of character and say like, um, just ask them bluntly, like, do you have any feedback? Like, do you like the way session's going? Is there anything you'd like to see more of Mm -hmm. before we're done? Because you, um, might only get this one opportunity to play with these people and being able to steer it in the right direction and sort of share the responsibility um, is really refreshing because as a player, what they're looking to get out of it is to just be heard and acknowledged. That's what, that's ultimately what everyone wants. And so if they jump in a table where the GM already has in their head, how this is going to go and it's scripted, Mm -hmm. not just in terms of the story of what happens, but also just in terms of the experience of like, this is the things the players are going to do. And you're just here along for the ride is kind of um, not necessarily insulting, but disappointing yeah. when you wanted a really dynamic role-playing I, experience. I completely agree. I think an ideal con game is one where if you didn't have this particular group, you would have a totally different experience. Because right. It's the effervescence of like this this sparkling thing happened at this moment yeah. that like all of us were here to witness, and now it's gone. Like we'll yeah, all leave. It, sh- and it should be ephemeral yeah. too. You know, I think I try to file this stuff away in my gm stories mostly because i do this show but you know i don't i shouldn't need to remember every detail of everything that happens like i would for a you know an ongoing campaign which gives me the opportunity to be a little bit faster and looser with it um you know focus more in the now and less on writing stuff down so that i can convert it to a front later which yeah and if you're physically there at a con you have the opportunity to revel in in in-person role-playing and i think that's what a lot of people are hungry for and why they go to cons maybe they don't get to play with real people that often maybe they play on roll 20 and online and through play by posts when they're in a con they're at a table with real people at the same time able to role play and there's certain things that can happen in those spaces that just can't i I definitely had players leave my game and immediately get in line for the next round um you know for the upcoming games which that's a good sign yeah, it's a good yeah. sign not only that they're having a good time at the con and that it's serving their needs but also that i didn't completely ruin their day and that they still have yeah, the energy yeah. for something more they're hungry for yeah. more exactly um i had encouraging moments like that when when i ran um dungeon world that first time at this um this like mini con that people were like oh man i want to play more of this game meaning dungeon mm-hmm. world so i was like happy that like they had seen some things in the system that they really enjoyed yeah, that was actually a really good session. But and I also that. know that your first Dungeon World group really informs how you go on to play Dungeon World from then on. So I try to be a good influence as best I can, where I, I, I lay it out in very clear terms. I have nothing prepared except that I printed out these character sheets for you. So now we're going to figure out what we're doing to, together as a group. It really sets the bar for, you know, the level of of listening that I'm prepared to do and the level of uh responsibility you know everyone has to contributing to the fun of the whole table there's a delicate balance when you're running a game for people that you've never met of both confidence and humility at the same time that you wanted to be like welcoming and um and not overbearing or anything like that but also want to be able to like be a presence at the table and have Mm -hmm. at least that um modicum of respect to be like i'm here um running this for you guys and i'm going to try to lead things. And if you trust me, this experience will be better, that sort of thing. Um, and also, we I think we talked about a few episodes ago, um, playing games as the creators intended or um, something along those lines. At cons is where that is almost more important than home games because you are in some sense an advocate for this game, especially if you're playing it for people who have never played it mm-hmm. before. And like we said, like being able to give people the, 
dungeon world experience. You know, that's not a really concept that we think about at home when the game is just a toolbox for us to do whatever we're with. Whereas when you're at a con, a lot of people, all they're seeing for your game is dungeon world on a sheet. Mm-hmm. And maybe they've heard of dungeon world that maybe they've listened to podcasts like this, but never played it. And they are like, here's an opportunity for someone to run it for me. And if they go there and you're like, oh yeah, actually we're playing a game where everyone is female snakes and it's in space, but we're just using the dungeon world rules. They're going to be kind of confused mm-hmm. because they signed up for something and they thought it was something and then they found out it was something But else. at the same time, cool. if someone comes to my table and says, I would like to be playing a female snake and everyone else agrees, I would also like to play a female snake. That's great. Yeah, yeah um, right. It's But it's the sort of thing that I shouldn't bring to the table and say, yeah, this is Dungeon World, but with snakes. It's a hack by Arthur and it is my own spin on this other great game, which is fine. You can purchase it or whatever. But I don't think that's a good con vibe to bring. But also... Um, um, what was the deal? Oh, sorry. No, no, no I, say your thing. My, my thing needs a little bit more thought anyway. I was going to say, um, what was the deal at PAX with how the games were advertised? Because oh, the yeah. little thing that I went to, it was you would put on a sheet um, your name or whatever you want it to be known as, the game you're running, and then a little blur mm-hmm. of like you had to like basically elevator pitch the game. And for mine, you know, I just wrote like something of like, you know, the, the dark hills of like Nothra mm-hmm. have never been explored until now, like be the one to like make history, you know, something yeah. like that to like sell this idea of like the, the tone of the game or what we were going for type of yeah. deal. Even though I did have nothing prepared. So the two times I've done games on demand, it has been more or less that I say what game I'm running, how many people I'm looking for, how long it's going to go. And then I give a couple sentences description. Um, when I was able to sign up in advance, I was able to give a description and it was more or less you know, come sit down at the table and we'll figure out everything else from there. At this, they actually generated a description for me because they didn't ask for one and I didn't realize that they needed one until I got back hours later to sit down and run it. So, oh, so they actually advertised mine as being an underground adventure, which I was a little bit put off by because I think it set the wrong expectation. <laughs> but at the same time... Oh, yeah, underground in what yeah, sense? But at yeah. the same time, it did end up being a game about getting abducted by giant ants and diving deeper and deeper into the colony until eventually they defeated the eldritch horror that lay underneath. And that was pretty great. And I don't think it would have even occurred to me to do an underground game if it hadn't been for the fact that it was described as one. And it wouldn't have been ants if I hadn't been talking to another con goer uh, in line for a panel at length about his hobby of sort of planning out and eventually constructing an elaborate home ant colony. So, you know. This is actually a topic that I almost didn't think about as being part of playing games with strangers like the before that you get the strangers together part because in home games um you don't have the like you, you you typically you're not competing with other games for your friends right you're just like do you want to play role playing games and your friend it's like yes or no to that concept um not do you want to play this game versus my other friend over there is like competing to get these players these that's mm-hmm. that's much less often the case whereas it is for online games and for con games where if someone's scrolling through roll 20 um, maybe they're looking for Dungeon World games and yours is the only Dungeon World game available. More often than not, a lot of people are running the same system, mm-hmm. especially for popular ones like Dungeon World and 5th Edition. And they're just making their decision based off of a few sentences of like, you know, back of the novel stuff. Yeah. Like if you're just flipping through a bunch of novels in the library. This is the same for if you're trying to organize a game on the Discord server or something. You're going through the channel where people are saying like, come play in my game. And you're just reading a 
few sentences of whatever they're pitching it as. So there's almost this skill of just, um, you have a space there to signal to your players the type of experience they're going to get and also to like entice them. And the people that you end up with will have been attracted to your mm-hmm. game for one reason. They'll be the ones that responded so, to your yeah. version of what you're going to be doing that day. And I will exactly. say, so it's a good way to yeah. get like minded. Um, totally. People, and and know? to the credit of the Games on Demand facilitators at PAX East, I really didn't feel like I was competing for players. I felt like I was serving people that wanted to come and play a game. So the fact that I was there to run it was all that I needed to to bring. I didn't need to I didn't feel the need to advertise or hype up mine versus someone else's. Because in the end everyone had a great yeah, time. Yeah, it's not like it's not like a zero sum game totally. um in the sense that like yeah. You gotta get the players before yeah. someone else yeah. does. Yeah, and I, I had yeah. I had two five player games, and I set my my maximum at five. So I'm I'm definitely not complaining about how that went. That's a good number, probably yeah. for. A I don't con. think I could do six. If you six strangers, oh, no, I think six is probably a hard limit. Yeah. Once you get to seven, it really feels like a lot. Of I people I don't. And it's really hard to share the spot. So I almost had to run a six person game in my home game because we ended up adding two new players, and if one player hadn't opted to take the week off. I don't know what we would have done. It definitely would have been a new experience for me. So I consider myself in lucky. The D&D game that I play in sometimes um, at our full strength is eight. Mm-hmm. And and it gets kind of hectic. And so a lot of times, especially in between sessions, we'll do pair quests mm-hmm. where like two people, their characters will go off to a part of the world and like they and the GM schedule a session, cool. like those two people. And then those pairs like rotate Ooh, like around that. so that people can like... I'm- Get I'm gonna time. I'm yeah. gonna put that in my back pocket for later use. But also, let's just quickly speed round a couple of uh, particular strategies that we use at our con games. Go for it. One of my strategies is if a player wants to be the immolator, I have I stare them directly in the eyes and say, "What interests you about the immolator?" Because if you're going to be an arsonist, <laughs> that's fine. But I just want you to also realize that you're also a cult leader. And I had an immolator in one of my games, and I was so glad that I made that clear because the concept for salamander immolator that this player ended up coming up with was fantastic. It was so good that I might save it for a picture of this later on because I was so impressed by this player immediately just getting what Dungeon World was all about coming from a D&D background. Um, I think you talked about that in a, a recent yeah, game. So I've had a lot of really good emulators in my groups, and I think I'm very oh, lucky. This is another, this is another new. This was one of my con games from the last couple of days. Um, oh yeah. wow! So oh, wow. It, it was a You've great, some, great emulator. Very happy about it. Got some emulators. Um, so yeah, certainly no complaints there. Um, so that, so yeah, thinking carefully about emulators though is definitely important because an emulator is a great way to spoil the fun for everybody else. Um, con. Con game trick number two that I always adhere to. I am very careful when I'm sort of handing out playbooks to make sure that we don't have two playbooks that are sort of going to have an incompatibility in terms of setting. I've had an issue in a game in the past where I had a bard and a ranger in the same group. And it was very hard to reconcile the fact that a bard needs to perform with the fact that a ranger needs to be out in civilization. And balancing that didn't go well in that game. And it's something that I've really thought a lot about as a result of that. So one of the things I do as well is I look at the composition of playbooks and I suggest a couple of different reasons why they could all be together. And as I'm suggesting that, I'll also suggest the place that they're in as one that is a neutral ground where everyone can contribute equally. Um, So that, I think, is important to do in a con game, especially when you have one three-hour or four-hour block to give everyone as much fun as you possibly can. 
it's important not to have a setting where, you know, you'll get the spotlight this week and the next week when we're somewhere else, the other player gets the spotlight because that's no fun. Learning about the people at your table as quickly as you can is one of the best ways to be able to serve them as best as totally. you can. And one of the ways to do that is as soon as they're like, oh, this playbook mm-hmm. looks interesting, pick it up. Ask them, why does that one appeal to you? Because then you can get an idea for their tastes, what they're looking for in this session, and those sorts yeah. of things. And right off the bat, you can also try to head off potential mm-hmm. issues and conflicting interest. Like if I had a player pick up the bar and be like, oh, I can't wait to, you know, you know, uh, explore some city intrigue as I like go around with this bard and uh like secretly overhear the conversations of nobles and then some picks up the ranger and it's like can't wait to hunt down beasts in the yeah. wild at the same time i would already be thinking okay i'm, I'm gonna as a gm ha- gonna have to balance these yeah. in I, I certainly wouldn't um unless it was an extreme case like step in and try to mm-hmm. like head off a player from a playbook um especially if i put that playbook out as a possibility um but trying to make sure that like in my setting allows for that yeah. or like thinking on the yeah, fly right. Right, as soon as the players sit down your job as a gm has mm-hmm. already started you got to be thinking ahead and right off the bat i have an idea for how to get that bard concept and that ranger concept into one a noble is so taken with the bard that he hires them to to play along with a hunting party that he's going to be using as a cover to slay one of his political rivals um and then there's your adventure right there everyone's out hunting wild beast and in the meantime, this noble is trying to position his nephew to, uh, you know, to get gored along the way. Wow. Oh, Already certainly. so much stuff. That, and, and that facilitates play for both of these characters because they both get, you know, what they want. But you have to be listening for And that. it gives you, uh, gives you a chance to see each of those characters in their element and also out mm-hmm. of it. When it's like the, 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 um, the bard sort of gets roped into like going on the expedition and he's yeah. like, I don't want to be out in the wild. I'll stain my, my, my fine robes. And yeah. Yes, my doublet. Don't forget. You know? And then the ranger yeah. has to sit through like the pomp and ceremony of like the mm-hmm. opening ceremonies or yeah, whatever. The trumpets go and whatnot. And don't forget that one of your GM moves is reveal uh, a weakness to your equipment or playbook or something to that tune. Um, yeah. Show, show a disadvantage. Your, I, think I think it's like equipment exact, or class. Yeah, the exact wording. Oh. Also, in, in that situation, I might sit there and be like, these players both say they want this, and then ask them, mm-hmm. okay, like, how do you think that we're going to reconcile this? And they might totally something even yeah, better. Yeah, people, people especially with. at con games where, they, where everyone's a stranger, people will tend to compromise a little bit more effectively than if there's a right. personal history there. Um, they're willing to work yeah. with you. You know, hopefully if they're out in public, they dressed up, they came to this mm-hmm. event, they're ready to play. They're putting on their game face and they're ready yeah. to... Uh, they're, they're lacing they're up good their mood, cleats at least. and they're yeah. playing. They're, they're, yeah. Exactly. They're ready, they're ready to, rumble. to rumble. They listen to a podcast on the way there. Mm-hmm. They're all ready to improv. Yeah. You're going to get some good stuff. They Typically, things are heightened at a totally. con game. Because it's not just like a scheduled time where you're here, you know, maybe you didn't necessarily mm-hmm. um, want to or something like that. But like, it's entirely elective. When someone's at your table at a con, yeah. it's because they were trying to be somehow. So, totally. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing I do is I, whenever, as I start out a game, I listen very carefully to the three or four things that my players bring up in their introductions. Because some players will jump straight to look and then not care at all about describing their animal companion. And some players will go into extreme detail about their history uh, that like existed before they picked the, before they ended up becoming the thing that their playbook says they are. And those are two very different players but everything that they say ends up being something they want to get repeated back at them mirrored back at them during the course of the session because that's when you're looking after your fictional flags in a con game is basically during character intros and that's it 
And you should have a checklist of here are the flags I think I can hit and here's my plan for hitting those flags. Like as soon as you ask, what do you do? There's a resource out there that um, it might be on the Dungeon World syllabus, but I think it's called Tight Dungeon World yes. One Shots that goes through almost with like a checklist and a schedule of running a one shot and like what sorts of conversations you should have and to get going and to just make a good satisfying session happen in that time, which is a challenge in and of itself of just pacing. And I think that's definitely worth the read. Mm-hmm. We can find it and link it because um, sometimes people get caught up in just talking about their characters and introducing themselves. And like, it's hard to just get the adventure actually going. Totally. Um, there's some practical stuff that's good for that um, at the table a lot of times, just on like a mundane level, bring some index cards. People might want to write mm-hmm. on them. Bring extra paper and pencils. One good thing that's really important, uh, the con might even think of this and provide it for you, but maybe they won't, is little nameplates. You can just fold an index card in half and put the have each player write their own uh, name in real mm-hmm. life and the name of their character. Because remembering like six new names, even of real people, is... Um, is difficult if you just met them yeah. and also remembering their in character name is important because addressing them as their character is one of the things that's we stress in dungeon world and um that's really handy in a con game. totally the first thing i i do in a con game is i write down everyone's names in order so that i can just glance and be like oh mark i'm uh um and actually mark is one of the players i played with in the last three days not going to tell you which one but shout outs to mark who was really fun to play with uh, if you're listening. Good job, Mark. You rule. Um, well, so with that in mind, hit us up with your own stories of playing at conventions. Tell us what went right, what went wrong, where you would have gone better. If you've played in a game with me and I told you to listen to this podcast as a result of that, you know, send an email, say so. Give feedback, critique as needed. We will read it on the air if it's useful. Anyway... With that in mind. Also, anyone out there who's ever had a bad experience with in-person role-playing with oh, con yeah, role-playing, with strangers. Um, let us hear that. Like, we'll hear your horror stories. But also, um, chin up. Like, you roll a six mm-hmm. minus. It's going to be a more interesting story in the future. Totally. And now you're the wiser. Think about what you, you've, you've learned. You've got some Fell battle forward. scars. Yeah. But with that in mind, I think it's time for us to stop talking and start picturing. In Picture This. So I had an awesome moment, one of those just brain on fire, like, oh, I can't wait to see this at the table moments. Um, and they were like nested inside each other. So it was just this like juicy idea sandwich, basically. Mm. I was reading through the amazing Veins of the Earth um, supplement, um, which is, I think it's, a, in fact, a, a wholesale um, hack and rework of the Legends of the Frame, Flame Princess system, which is basically a reworking of D&D. You can look that up. Um, and the author, uh, Patrick, I'll put his full name in the description. Uh, he had an acknowledgement section at the beginning of the book and he's like, thank you to this person for challenging me to make this book. Thank you for this person for editing. And he's linking to all of their blogs. And then in the last person on the list, he said, Patrick does not wish to thank Arnold K. And he, um, he put that person's blog, goblinpunch.blogspot.com. And then he said a little sentence saying, Arnold, you challenge my greatness, but it is you who shall be destroyed. I will feast on your lungs before the end. And this is just in the acknowledgement section of the book. And I'm just like, what? And so I see, I see this and I'm just like, I wonder if this is just like an is, inside is this joke. Is real beef or is this like? Yeah. But, 
because I know that there's controversy surrounding Legends of the Flame Princess and they, they definitely have their haters and whatever. And um, anyway, so I, I was like, well, now he linked this guy's blog, though. So I was like, I, I'll go check it out. And so I go check out goblinpunch.blogspot.com to like see. And it's what you would expect. It's like a gaming blog. It's this person have differing ideas and stuff. But I found a really awesome post there. Um, this uh, person, um, Ar- Arnold K., um, has a, a post called a spell called Catherine and they basically lay out a, an adventure um, uh, or, or even a whole campaign, basically like plot setting. Um, and it's really well written. I'll, I'll link to it. And um, it's just f- ripe for dungeon world. Um, here's the, um, the setting in, in brief. Um, I'll read the first like two paragraphs of this, and then you can go read the rest Um it's it's just screaming to be put at the table. There's no stats or anything. It's just here's a situation that your PCs can be part of. So here here it is. A spell called Catherine. Trevalus Mendelusis is a wizard. Although he's hardly a world-class archmage, he's known within Meltheria as a summoner of no small talent. Mendelusis is also regarded as a glutton and a lecher, with an odd sense of humor and a narrow set of associates. He's not unkind or unpleasant, merely awkward and sometimes self-absorbed. Just last month, Mendelusus finally capitulated to the demands of his friends, and shared a spell that he had recently developed. It is simple enough that any wizard past his apprenticeship can cast it. He calls the spell Catherine. Quite simply, the spell summons a woman of the same name. The spell lasts for several hours. She is young, attractive, blonde, and wears a large blue dress, although she can change into anything provided. In personality, she is quick to laugh and prone to pouting. In all respects, she acts exactly like a real human being. She's especially eager to obey any commands as long as they are phrased politely. It is fair to say that Mendelusins did not anticipate that his spell would get such a reaction. And the whole thing goes on to describe this situation where the city is in an uproar because people are like, human summoning isn't necessarily illegal, but we didn't necessarily know it was possible. And the wizard colleges are all competing for like, who's going to pursue this line of research. The city itself is deciding whether or not to ban such a thing. And while they're deliberating on this decision, people are buying up as many copies of this spell as they can, because they're afraid that it'll go Mm. out of business and it's really valuable. Um, Different um, factions are weighing in like the, the church um, um, or, or whatever clerical organization in this setting that he determines, um, immediately um, comes out in um, opposition to this spell and says that it's it's heresy and anyone who casts this should be burned. Um, and um, different uh, people are flooding into the city. The, the foreign embassies of this city are just like gearing up for the coming storm as they know foreign relations are suddenly going to get crazy and all this stuff. And meanwhile, um, in the city, uh, the casting of the spell um, is um, not banned yet. But the, there are like watch notices that it's like, if you see a woman like this, please note that she is likely a spell effect and not a real human and um, do not be duped because like different pranks are already like popping up all over the city. And a woman um, is arrested um, in part of the city uh, because the, the, the grocer uh, tells her that um, she is not a real person. She's a spell effect and points to a nearby sign as proof. And she protests, no, I'm a real person. And the guards detain her and put her in jail and waiting for her to disappear, and she doesn't. And then people come by and testify to be her real family and stuff, and she identifies that her name is Catherine, and she looks almost exactly like the person the spell summons. Mm. So this controversy develops that maybe she was the person that the spell was based on, and there's and she's suing Mendelusis. And so this trial is staged to happen, and that's where the PCs can come in. So the PCs, this can either be going on in the background, 
But it's one of those situations where it's plausible enough, it could only happen in a fantasy setting, and a small group of dedicated individuals could sway it either way. Like, they could testify at the trial, or they could, you know, assassinate somebody, or forge something, like, all kinds of stuff could go on. And the results of it being resolved are going to change the world in major ways. Like, human summoning could either, like, be headed off as ever being a thing, or, you know, and be some, like, black market underground thing, or could, like, be a recognized thing and like the pcs have a say in that in the world and it would probably also divide the party and their standpoints yeah. isn't that just like that ripe is with just so much stuff there's so much there that lets us do you know both really interesting you know, so yeah you touched on a couple of things there that i really really like in particular yes your pcs are going to be divided about this probably along lines similar to what the real world people feel but not necessarily and I really enjoy it when a game gives you the opportunity to explore something controversial or weird that ideally you would never encounter in the real world so that you wouldn't have to figure out how you feel about it. Um, oh, yeah. If you want to run a session that has like a lot of fighting, stabbing, and like stuff in it, this could still mm-hmm. do that, right? Like um, it, it says that um, Mendelusis is hiring a small army of thugs just to head off all the counterfeiters that are already trying to like make cheap versions yeah. of the same spell. Um, and uh, you could you know, be that, and there could be this in the background. But if you want a session with intrigue, sometimes it's hard to conjure that out of nowhere. You're like, how do I make a dynamic situation with multiple parties at stake and all that stuff? Um, this is so yeah. much intrigue. If you read the full thing, it talks about how, like, uh, the the real woman, Catherine, is being hazed by all these people who are, like, um, telling her that she mm-hmm. isn't real and, um, and, and saying that, like, oh, because of you, this spell exists. And she's um, she comes home one day to find, like, a dead version of the summoned spell uh, person in her kitchen, like that someone like murdered an effigy of her, like all, all kinds of weird stuff goes on. But it's basically like this ethical dilemma that you rarely get to ha- engage with something that dynamic in a, in a role playing yeah. setting. And just, you could even have one of the PCs be Catherine. Ooh, wow. And like the, so, someone made a spell yeah. version that now like summons or, copies or, of you. It, or maybe there's a Catherine that, and then know? someone wrote a spell based on the PC and the Catherine spell. And now there are two different versions of it. Um, oh yeah. yeah uh, or you could have the um, there. Well, you could even have this be a potential thing that a a, P, a PC mm-hmm. wizard could create, you know, um, or give them this yeah. spell. See what they Wizards do. Wizards have or, you know that unseen servant as a cantrip. What happens if that servant can be seen and it's someone that they've met before? Right. Well, like the, like what if it's just randomly select someone? Um, and and so they, they maybe they think more about what they're going to do with their unseen mm-hmm. servant now that they're effectively stealing someone's likeness every yeah. time they do it, you know? Yeah, so much, so there. much there. That's why I, I said this. I really like that. I'll definitely and, link to this because it's just definitely... And how morally gray you want it to be is super... It's, a, it's definitely something you can kind of slide from one end of the scale to the other based on the preferences of your group. You know, you could say just as easily, oh, this person is definitely like an apparition or you can go way further in the other direction and get into a much more morally thorny to outright immoral territory as you go, which is always a good sign that you've got something really versatile to pull on. I love that. In the comments, um, there's a little addendum where the creator says, uh, is this situation contrived? Yeah, a little. Is it forced? Shouldn't be. If your players don't give an F about defining sentience and personhood, don't try to make them. If they want to kick down doors and smash faces, mm-hmm. let them. So he's just kind of saying that yeah. You can take this, pick it apart, do what you will with it. Yeah, this sounds like it's totally right really for some flexible. groups. And with a little bit of adjustment, can be totally right for other groups as well. Um, definitely going to put that one down the, uh, you know, keep that one down, put it in the back pocket to pull out later. Nice. All right. 
Well, what an excellent thing to picture. Wanna, but I think it's time for us to uh, reach out to the community. Listener emails. Listener emails. Yeah. What's that email address, Amen? The email address that we've got set up is play to find out at protonmail.com. Yeah. And we'll put that in the description. You can as also well. reach us by messaging us on Discord. Again, Art Projects and Voidlight. Uh, or by following us on Twitter at play numeral to find out. Now let's check that inbox. What have we got today? So we have an email from Agatha saying, Hey folks, I've got a topic I'd love for you to talk about. How to make combat interesting. I've noticed that combat sometimes gets weighed down in Dungeon World sessions that I've played, and I'm wondering if you guys have tips on how it can be more streamlined but still, pack a punch. Thanks, Agatha. I have so many opinions about this, and some advice as well. But there is, um, I think it's called the the Dungeon World Guide or something like that. It's it's this in depth. It's even illustrated and stuff. Guide that someone made to Dungeon World, um, and I think you can find it in the sidebar of the. Dungeon World subreddit or in the Dungeon World syllabus that's floating around. But that's worth a read, especially just in terms of understanding how combat um, goes in Dungeon World. It sounds like this person might be like coming from another system, perhaps, um, and trying to get this combat to flow smoothly. I think Dungeon World is situated that um, you've got all the tools there to make combat fly by, be super narrative, and all that stuff. Yeah, so here's here's my, my advice. There are a couple of techniques and then a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, Technique number one, make sure that you don't just roll damage um, as the only thing that happens on a fail or a partial success in a hack and slash. Yeah, monsters do yeah, monster The wording moves. is very specific here. It's not your the monster does damage or the monster attacks. It is you do your damage, the player does their damage, and the, the and they are exposed to an attack. There's nothing stopping a move like hack and slash from killing the thing at which it is directed and then having some other force be the thing that attacks back. There's also nothing stopping hack and slash from being, you know, an ordered thing. Yes, the player rolls damage probably before you roll damage, but that doesn't mean that the uh, that that's how it happens in fiction. It could very well be that and the way that I I'll often frame this is you strike this foe down, but not before it is able to claw at your armor. It rips your chainmail slightly, reducing its efficacy. Or, you know, dealing, you know, 1d6 damage and then roll the, the d6. So don't be afraid to kind of go out of the order that the move specifies in order to get the, the framing and the fictional positioning right. Now, also, combat in Dungeon World is almost guaranteed take half the time of combat in a lot of mm -hmm. other systems simply because you don't roll for the opponents like a roll for um the pc to hack and slash both says how effective the pc is and how serious uh the enemy's rebuttal is just in that single roll so that's already a lot of streamlining um if you want even more than that um it is possible to resolve combats in dungeon roll just with a mm -hmm. single roll um you just up the consequences like you just let the player know that um, based on the scale of what could p likely happen in this combat, if you fail this roll, you could be rolling yeah. last breath. But if you succeed this roll, you could be wiping everyone out. Like, if we're not go interested in going 
play by play, you can almost montage mm-hmm. a combat and like make yeah. it be a one thing goal. I love doing is triggering hack and slash in an area of effect attack or a group attack where one player swings yeah. their warhammer in a mighty arc, carving through the, the horde of skeletons. Great. That's still one hack and slash. The damage you roll is going to affect all the skeletons, but the consequences of the move will come from all the skeletons. It's a great way to speed Right, because you're standing in the midst of Yeah, it's of a great a way horde. to speed things yeah. up because you're not worrying about each individual skeleton and what it's doing. Instead, you can describe it as, oh, you miss two of them, and they immediately jump back and then tackle you as, you're, as you complete your swing. You're now pinned down as the skeletons start to whack at you with their femurs. I don't know why, but I always go with femurs as the skeleton's weapon of choice. Um, it's the sturdiest that, That's bone. probably yeah. why. Um, getting clubbed with femurs. I'd play to find out. So then the other thing that I would really recommend doing, um, every combat situation should take place somewhere where you can make moves based on the place. I ran a session recently where... The entire thing was sort of around and in a volcano, which meant that I could make moves using the lava of the volcano. So not only was I able to say, oh, you know, in the attack, you are you are tackled and you you are scalded by the by a spray of steam. I can also say, you know, the whole group moves slightly. You know, your your footing is getting shakier and shakier as the volcano quakes underneath you. And as you move to solid ground, the area where you were fighting is consumed by the magma flow. These are ways that you can really shake up combat by sort of changing the scenario and pushing things along, um, especially on failure moves. There's nothing wrong with having a failure move. Basically push your party into the next room of the dungeon, quote unquote, and then having the consequence be that when they get in there, now they're overwhelmed by two forces, the forces that they're escaping from and the forces that they're now encountering. Even though it's a fail, it still pushes things forward. It still pushes combat towards its conclusion by changing the setting. Additionally, if your combats often devolve into player rolls volley, player rolls hack and slash, player rolls volley, player rolls hack and slash until the enemy is dead, um, if you make the environment dynamic, it encourages and rewards the use of things like discern realities mm-hmm. in the middle of combat. A lot of times I'll have things like if the wizard takes a minute and just assesses the situation and says like, what here is useful or valuable to me or something like that, or what is not it appears to be, there's a hidden mm-hmm. ley line somewhere. So if you stand in this corner of the room, your spells are going to be like greatly enhanced, you know, and that corner of the room might be exposed or something like that. So it's their choice to make, or perhaps um, there's a spirit trapped in some, like a pot somewhere or like in the lava is like a spirit that like it would be open to you summoning it um, yeah. if you p- would pursue that route or for a fighter like you know that chandelier looks like you could um, slice mm-hmm. the chain and drop it down like there's yeah. just different things the that harpies happen. are slightly like, out of reach waiting. because they're flying outside of your uh, you know outside of the sweeping range of your halberd so you're going to need to jump up or jump off of something or swing on something in order to get your attack um, you know give opportunities to yeah, just potential yeah, give opportunities to defy danger not just hack and slash um, and occasionally have enemies that require more than just, oh, I swing my sword in order to engage hack and slash. We've talked about this before in the boss battles conversation about how if you only trigger hack, if you trigger hack and slash every single time a player makes an attack, then you're losing out on a whole range of times when hack and slash doesn't trigger at all because their opponent bests them in one-on-one melee. Also defend. Defend yes. is a great move that has very thought out mm-hmm. mechanics for it and it's very useful um and i just don't yeah. see it get that much i actually that much i saw yeah. a surprising amount of defending happening during my uh my 
my pickup games over the past couple of days. I was awesome. really, really excited about it. it. It also meant I had to explain hold to people who didn't understand hold. So, you know, that's fine. Well, that's good. Now they have that technique yes. that they can carry into any game. Hold, hold is, great. is very useful. Um, cool. So hopefully that gives you some ideas. If not, email back. Say, hey, that wasn't enough. Give me more and we will give you more. Arthur, you know what? what? All this talk today, especially about um, running games at cons and of like super interesting combat and of crazy wizard spells just makes me dying to play a role-playing game. Can our listeners expect at some point in the future to hear any actual play on the air? Well, it just so happens that we are coming up uh, little by little, but sooner and sooner. We're coming up on episode 10, and I think episode 10, we're going to do, in addition to our ordinarily scheduled program, we're going to do some kind of bonus episode. And I don't want to get into too many specifics on the air just yet, but I want you all to keep an eye out for it, because I think we've got something pretty special in mind. Still, though, it's not a, this isn't a podcast mm-hmm. on rails. We definitely play to find out. Um, and as you can tell, we definitely don't script everything right before we oh, start yeah. recording. So if you have an idea, ideas on what special treats you'd like to hear or uh, uh, what would be a good idea for a episode 10 mm-hmm. feature, uh, hit us up. We, we're definitely susceptible to suggestions and cool things. Susceptible is exactly the word I would use. I am outright vulnerable to cool ideas. <laughs> my cool ideas are yes. my weakness. So unless we have more email that we want to cover today, which I'm not... There is another, but it's rather longer, and so we could probably well, save, let's save it for, for next week. week. We are already running somewhat long, and I would love to keep this momentum going for another one. With that in mind, thank you for listening to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World Discord's podcast of choice, I presume. I've been Arthur <laughs> or Art Projects. I have been Eamon and Void Light on the Discord. If you like what you hear, let us know. We'd love mm-hmm. to hear about it. And also, if you want to support the show, one of the best things that you can do is go ahead and drop a review. In terms of the algorithms and how that all works out, iTunes is probably mm-hmm. the best place to leave yeah. a review. And if your review is stunning, funny, contains something that would be great for Picture This, we might even read it on the air. So for keep that sure. In and thank you to those of you who have already left reviews. We'd really appreciate the support and the positive vibes that you have given us. It really does keep us going and keep us excited to get out here every week and put something together for you. Yeah, thanks, Ray Otis. You're our first review. So exciting. Does does that mean that Ray has friend of the show status? I think Ray has friend of the show status. He's probably also been called out in terms of content. Yeah, we definitely cite Ray Otis Just because I love Plundergrounds. So a friend of the show, Ray Otis, has this really cool zine. You should check it out. You can check that out in the zines channel on the Dungeon World Discord and kind of go from there, I presume. It's in there somewhere, I'm sure. Friend of the show means that whenever I think of Ray's name in my head, it will be surrounded by a decorative mm-hmm. border. Yeah. So you've got yeah, that Yeah, if this were a Twitch now. stream, there would absolutely be like a thing flashing up on the screen. But it's not. It's an audio medium. And with that in mind, it's time for us to stop talking to you and start, uh, in my case, start getting ready for bed because it is late. So that's going to do it for me on Play to Find Out. Thank you for joining us at the table today. It's been a pleasure.